gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. When we look at this mandate of message first, we also acknowledge there is the messenger. And how the messenger conducts himself, specifically the pastor, elder, shepherd, is of critical importance. And that is why we come here to this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, which, why are we preaching and talking about this? It's because it is the next passage we come to as we're walking through God's word. But very practically as well, it is so important for you to know and to be equipped with the type of pastors, elders, that should govern the church. So many things today, we look at someone, do they have a magnetic personality? Do they have talent? Do they have ability and the external winsomeness that is gonna draw a crowd? But Paul writes and says, here's what matters. Is he godly? Does his life evidence that? Chapter three, beginning in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus features prominently in the book of Acts and in early church history where there was a stronghold of the early church. But as we learn in chapter 1, this church had problems. Matter of fact, it was plagued with strife, division, particularly with its leadership. Leaders who were about putting themselves forward and, and wielding the scriptures in a way to elicit a response of, wow, isn't he smart? How did he get that? puffing themselves up with pride and manipulating the Old Testament law to engender good speculations, but not really godliness. Because of poor leadership, church order, and the worship of the church had fallen into disarray. When we look at the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they particularly confront the, what they called the shepherds of Israel and faulted them that one of the reasons Israel went astray is because of the poor shepherding leadership of those who were to be an oversight of God's people. Good leadership is critical. Not because the leader is some, some special category of Christian. No, I, the other leaders here, we have feet of clay just like you. But there must be godliness. There must be an evidence of godliness. You should expect that from me. And if you go to another church, it should be the first thing you look for. Is the word of God proclaimed? Is, is Jesus Christ exalted? And does the eldership exhibit godliness? What does godly leadership look like? Well, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul puts the emphasis right back where it should be, handling the text 
well. If the one uses the law, they should use it lawfully, verse 8. And let's look at Christ and the gospel. This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's the gospel, brothers and sisters. He's bringing it back to the forefront, reminding the church. He's not wielding it in arrogance, though. But there's a sense of humility of the grace that has even been given to him because he calls himself, in verse 15, the Apostle Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners. There's a humility of what has been given. In chapter 2, we see that he is a leader and that Timothy is to be a leader that encourages learnership, not just blind submission because I'm the leader and you're the congregation. you got to do what I say. No, it's, it's an encouragement of empowerment. He's talking to the men. Hey, don't come in with your quarrels and your anger and thereby put obstacles in your learnership before the Lord and in women's learnership. And then he goes to the women and he says, let a woman learn, Timothy. Let her be a disciple, a full disciple, right there along the men. Good leadership also sees the church as the beginning of Eden restored. Eden restored, that, that the church is, is to be a beginning of the reclaiming of the glories of creation. The glories of our created roles. It's corrective, it's hopeful, but it's anticipatory also when Jesus returns and makes it all right. And then we come to chapter 3 where he says, hey, and his character matters. Now last week, we looked at two things and asked two questions. What is an overseer and what does an overseer do? What is an overseer? We see that in chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone desires the office of an overseer, but you might say, what, what is that word? I'm familiar with pastor, but what is overseer? In the New Testament, there are three key terms that are used to describe what we traditionally call the role of pastor. It's the word elder, it's the word overseer, and it's the word shepherd. We get the word pastor from shepherd. The word pastor does not appear anywhere in the New Testament. We get the word for pastor actually coming out of the word shepherd. Pastoral work is that very agrarian calling. When we look at these three terms, though, these are not three separate offices. Matter of fact, as we look at the New Testament, they are three different titles used to look at the same position, but in different ways. The overseer, the one charged with the oversight of God's church. The elder, someone who has a demonstrated maturity in Christ. And then the shepherd, which comes from Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. Shepherds and teachers, you know, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. But shepherds and teachers are not separate offices. Matter of fact, in the Greek, the word chi has the idea of shepherds, that is to say teachers, that their primary role is shepherding through the teaching of the Word of God. When we look at overseers, elders, which I'm just going to say, I'm just going to use the word pastor. The pastor includes kind of all these titles. That it is always found in a plurality. It's not a one-man show. It's not a single personality, but a group of qualified men who are to fulfill the role of elder, overseer, shepherd, teacher. Now, when I say a group of qualified men, recognizing the culture and the day and age we live in and the confusion that arrives in this topic of what can, can a woman be a pastor elder? 
We spent five weeks, about a month and a half ago, looking through 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. If you're joining us, I would encourage you to go back and look at those because that will give you some necessary underpinnings of understanding this role. There are three groups that are not qualified to be elder, pastor, shepherd, overseers. The first one are women because of their created role. It's not your created role. It's not one of capacity. It's not one of ability. No, but that is not what God has created you to operate in that role. The second category are qualified men who have no desire to be an elder. If God has not placed that desire of eldership within you, then you shouldn't be one. So you likewise are not qualified. The third category are men whose lives are not qualified. They don't have godly lives. Even if you have a desire, your life doesn't match. So three categories that should not be elder overseers. Now, what does an elder overseer do? We looked at Acts 20 last week. Briefly, we referenced that Acts 20, we see the Apostle Paul as an elder speaking to the Ephesian elders, the church in Ephesus. And remember, 1 Timothy is written to the church in Ephesus. And he says, you've seen my life. You've seen how I lived. So we see an elder has an example. And then he says, I boldly declared the word of God, teaching all that is profitable from the word of God, testifying that Jesus Christ is Lord and exhorting the church unto godliness and into obedience. And he does so with great affection. We see characteristics of a good overseer, elder, the oversight of God's people, shepherding the people of God. Now, the elder overseer is not a solo act. I think that the solo senior pastor, whether it be a small church or a large church, is inherently dangerous. It puts too much authority and power centralized in one position. And it is not the biblical example. We see a plurality of leaders, of elders, who are involved in the oversight of the church. And we even take the Old Testament mandate of in the presence or in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. It's not a solo act. Please don't treat it as such. Yeah, I probably will not be the first person that gets to you when a crisis happens. There's others that help share the load. One another is the job of the community of God is to care for the community of God. We do it together. Elders, deacons, faithful servants of God, men and women of all ages and giftings to one another and love one another according to God's word. Now, when we look at 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy is one of the most relevant New Testament books in talking about church eldership and leadership. And, and I am concerned I do think in the church today that we rush men into ministry leadership before they have been proven. We expect the wrong things of them. We expect them to be Instagram influencers and personalities and magnetism and have all of these oratory skills and to be CEOs and business managers. But when we are ordaining them and putting them in position, do we ask them, are you pure in your private life? Do you demonstrate value and care and respect for your sisters in Christ? Do you show an inherent love for God in your conduct and speech and actions? 
What is then the character of the elder overseer? Here's the two points we're going to look at this morning. What is his character and why is this role so important? So number one, what is the character of the elder overseer? What kind of man is the pastor to be? Chapter 3, verse 1, he desires. It is a man who desires, who has sanctified desires. He desires what? A good thing, verse 1 says. It's a noble task. In the Greek, has the idea of a noble, beautiful, excellent work. And if God has put this desire in you, that is the first thing. It's a desire. It's not an obligation. It is not a, well, I guess if no one else will, then I, then I will. It is not for personal gain or for aggrandizement or because you get the platform or because it is public and it's your local way to become a local celebrity. No, it's a sanctified desire to want to honor Christ through the proclamation of the Word of God and the caring for the community. But desire alone is not enough. George Knight writes, the items that we find in this list focuses on two areas, personal self-discipline and maturity, and number two, the ability to relate well to others and care for them. When we look at this list, it has the idea of, okay, is there personal self-discipline and maturity? And, and does he have the ability to relate well to others to care for them well? These two are intertwined and it moves from the personal to the interpersonal. And we must take a warning. Alexander Strzok writes, elders cannot teach and defend the gospel if their lives discredit the gospel. Is it not a grief when men of God who have proclaimed the word of God discredit the gospel with their lives? You see, elders have a particular weight in crediting or discrediting the gospel based upon their actions, demeanor, or lifestyle. There can be the singular discrediting. This is, this is the cannonball of a moral failure that blows a hole in the ship. This is the moral sexual failure of which there are many examples even in recent history of evangelicalism. These are the ones that grab the headlines. These are the ones that are clearly obvious. The singular discrediting action, a sexual offense or abuse that is a travesty before God and inexcusable. But there's also the slow discrediting. The many leaks over time that sink the ship. The slow leaks of just an angry heart, of control, unkindness, a sense of, I'm not sure he's trustworthy. You just see little glimpses of it. And over time, you realize, I don't think he credits the gospel with the way that he lives his life. I am not perfect, brothers and sisters. I am not. 
Matter of fact, as I was driving to church today and I was talking to my kids about what I'm preaching on today, I said, you know, sometimes it's like, it's like preaching with, with one foot in, your bu- in a bucket because you're preaching on something and you're looking at it going, goodness gracious, I have a long way to go. But I do hope with a clear conscience before the Lord, I can say, follow me, but as I follow Christ, as Paul says. Now, there should be evidences in my life of godliness. And you should expect that. And I should expect that of myself. And it's inexcusable to say that holiness does not matter. Now, as we look at chapter 3 and verse 1, I I don't think this is an exhaustive list, by the way. You should not make this a checklist and say this is all that there is. This is not an exhaustive list. Paul seems to be highlighting qualifications that specifically stand in contrast to the leaders we find in chapter 1. Men who are all about themselves, who have no external evidences of godliness, even though they might be great orators and teachers. But Paul is saying no character qualities matter. In Titus chapter 1, we actually find a similar list for the qualifications of elders. But in there, we have some minor differences. Not that one has a certain qualification and another has a different one. They both require the same. But in Titus's case, because of empty talkers and deceivers, Paul emphasizes that the man of God, the elder, must be sound in doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. The battle of godliness is nothing new. As a matter of fact, the church in church history, we have evidences of those who are more concerned about building their kingdom than being godly. In a letter to a young presbyter named Nepotian, dated AD 394, so, you know, 1,700 years ago. But Jerome rebukes the churches of his day for their hypocrisy in showing more concern for the appearance of their church buildings than the careful selection of their church leaders. He writes, Jerome, 1,700 years ago. Many build churches nowadays. Their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittering with gold, their altars studded with jewels. Yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid. During the Reformation, and particularly in the English Reformation, that swept in the 16th and 17th century, you find the Puritans. And now, who are the Puritans? They had a heart to see God's church purified, hence the name Puritan. And they were constantly confronting those ministers who were in it just for vocation or for social status, but not actually proclaiming the word of God or living in a way that honored God. But no, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, desires a noble task, and his life should evidence that. First, verse 2, he must be above reproach. Holy. When we say above reproach, what we're saying is he's not open to accusation. Godliness, holiness. And what is holiness? Godliness? It's loving what God loves and being grieved by what grieves God. It's having affections and a lifestyle that images God. That's what holiness is. That's what godliness is. Robert Murray McShane, an 18th century Scottish pastor, wrote, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Now, at first pass, you might say, that seems very egocentric. What my people need is what I can give them. That's not what he's saying. 
Do you remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's one of the Beatitudes. That holiness gives us a clear vision of God. If you are a Christian and you endeavor or you walk into impurity and holiness, you don't lose your salvation, but your view of God becomes clouded and obscured and you feel distant. How can a man who's supposed to show people God show them God if his view of God is clouded by his own impurity? Pure hearts so that he can see God so that he can show people God through the word. Above reproach, by the way, seems to be the header of all that follows here in this list. Above reproach in regards to marriage, above reproach in regards to affections, above reproach in the way that he relates to people. It is highly noteworthy that the New Testament provides more instruction on the qualification for eldership than any other aspect of leadership. Such qualifications are not required of all teachers or evangelists. One may be gifted as an evangelist, okay? One may be gifted as an evangelist and be used of God in that capacity and yet be unqualified as an elder. An individual may be an evangelist immediately after conversion. And if God has done something in your life, you've been saved, go tell people, be an evangelist. But scripture says that a new convert cannot be an elder. We see this in verse 6. There must be a provenness, a provenness of godliness. He must be above reproach. And even regards to his marriage, he must be a covenant keeper. A husband of one wife. The phrase husband of one wife is made up of three words in the Greek. It means one, and then gynaikos, wife or woman. And then Andra, husband or man. And literally, as you kind of look at the emphasis of the way the Greek puts it, uh, it can be read as one wife, husband, or a one woman, man. This passage has been actually greatly debated over the years. Uh, one position says that, well, elders must be married. That, that's right there in the qualification. Elders must be married. That would be inconsistent with the text since Paul himself was not married. Some people say that elders must not be polygamous, not have many wives. That seems inconsistent with the culture at the time and the text at the time. That is not the primary battle that is going, and it just doesn't read that way even as you go through this book, that that's what he's after. Because then you'd be saying, we're talking about status and the rest are character qualities, Instead of looking at them all as character qualities, I think, in what Paul intended. A third position is that elders may marry only once. Uh, so a divorcee cannot be an elder. And I would add and say this is probably the most controversial of the four positions, that divorcees cannot be elders. Um, here is the challenge with that. If you take that position... On what basis are you elevating this particular sin, the dissolution of a marriage, over the list of many other sins? Murder? Sexual deviancies? On what basis are you elevating that? Is that what Paul is intending? And what if it is before Christ? If all things are new in Christ, 
Are we going to go back and say, because you made that mistake before you were in Christ, there is truly no allowance for you post-Christ? It raises a whole lot more questions than actually provides good answers. The best way to understand it is that elders must be maritally and sexually above reproach. Has to do with his fidelity, his covenant keeping. God holds true to his covenants, Israel, to the church, in thought and deed and speech and action and in the material world. And by the way, in the digital world, there should be marital and sexual fidelity. The elders should have disciplined affections. And I'm going to group some of these qualifications together because I think it has to do with disciplining his affections. Sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard, not a lover of money, not controlled by these things. There is a disciplined heart and mind, not a laziness of speech and being, but a seriousness of heart the evidence of a life walking with God. I want to stop here and say, by the way, should not all of these things be qualifications for all Christians? Shouldn't this be an example that encourages all believers to follow in? The calls to godliness are not just for the leadership, but for all believers as priesthood of a believer's. Now, the elder is also to have the ability to teach. And we see that in the verse here where it says in, he has an ability to teach at the end of verse 2. And this is actually a key difference between the elder and the deacon. It's a difference in the list of qualifications. It's a list different than what we see in the book of Acts and across the New Testament. There must be an ability. He may not be the greatest orator, or the greatest communicator the world has ever seen, but there must be a knowledge of Scripture, a readiness to teach, and an ability to communicate. And that ability confirms and affirms the desire that he has to be an elder. The elder is also to have a peacemaking presence. Another grouping of these qualifications, a peacemaking presence, respectable, hospitable, not quarrelsome, not violent, but gentle. Well thought of by outsiders. It's a life that is not just at peace with everybody, that's impossible, but a peacemaking presence that works and relates well with others. When it says well thought of by outsiders, by the way, we should not think of this as likable. Too many pastors and leaders spend more time trying to be likable than being godly. Well thought of in what way? Within the context of what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he must be well thought of in that they might not like what he has to say, but they can't deny that he's a man above reproach and not open to accusation. We also see that his family evidences his godly care. His first disciples should be evidence of his own walk. He also has a time-tested walk with God, not a recent convert, or he may become puffed up. One of the greatest challenges of public ministry 
is that of believing in your own legend and thinking that you are all that. And that's not just for the elders, for all of us, whether you have 500 followers on Instagram or 5 million. It is believing that we are at the center and being puffed up or striving to puff ourselves up. No, you should have a time-tested walk with God, a proven walk through valleys and through mountains. If you want to see other passages that have to do with what the elders look like, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. Go and read that this week. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Too many pastors dominate instead of wash feet. Humble. Kevin DeYoung writes, my congregation needs me to be humble before they need me to be smart. They need me to be honest more than they need me to be a dynamic leader. They need me to be teachable more than they need me to teach at conferences. If your walk matches your talk, if your faith costs you something, if being a Christian is more than a cultural garb, then they will listen to you. The character of the elder matters. Number two, what is the work then of an elder and why is it so important? Why is the work of an elder overseer so important? Again, I want to say that there's a little bit of an awkwardness at preaching my own position or the position of my fellow brothers. Hence why I've endeavored to try and stick close to the word and also say, why does this matter? Why should you expect this of me and others, whatever church you go to? Because it is the role of the overseer and the elder to lead and to help protect what is costly. The word of God has been handed down to us over millennia through the providence and the goodness of God on the blood of men and women who've given their lives so that we could sit here in openness and read its sacred words. And yet how many churches and sermons we cast the word of God aside. We don't guard it. We don't expound it. We just ignore it. The role of the overseer is to protect the word of God and the dignity of Christ through his life and through his words. And he has to oversee and to protect the church that in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says that the church of God, which Jesus obtained with his own blood, he obtained not this building with his blood, the church, the people of God. He obtained you with his blood. He obtained me with his blood. And the overseer is to protect that which is costly. You are costly. Nothing else in the cosmos has been bought with the blood of God like your soul has. The elder also has the responsibility of shaping the voice of God in people's ears. One of the reasons that I believe in the exposition of the Word of God, the systematic going through verse by verse, is because it forces us to look at content that I might not naturally look at. It also forces me to vary my tone, to speak in love when the Scriptures speak in love, 
to speak in lament when the Scriptures speak in lament, to speak with authoritative confrontation when the Scriptures speak in authoritative confrontation. The elder pastor is to image the Word of God through its content, but he's also to exemplify the Word of God using voice, demeanor. This is not an acting, don't misunderstand me, but to clearly represent what is found in the Word of God. Have you ever been at a church where the pastor is constantly, God loves you, he loves you, and he always does, and don't you forget, and then after a while, you're already like too much. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not downing my brothers in Christ, but I am challenging that sometimes the angry and the loud voice of the pastor gets so imprinted on the congregation that when they read the word of God, all they hear is a loud shouting voice at them. Or frankly, the other side of the spectrum. God loves you no matter what. That's a lie. I'm sorry, it is. God loves you in Christ. And he loves you to Christ. But if you choose to refuse him and disbelieve him, that love will be removed. We have to be careful that the voice and the tone do not miscommunicate what the word of God is saying. Lastly, the role of the elder images Christ himself. Exercise rightly, it is another imaging of Christ. The temple, the priesthood, the shepherd, the king, marriage, family, in different ways, images, aspects of Christ. Likewise, eldership. That a godly overseer images Christ. It's worth noting that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, that Christ is called the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's a title that is given by Peter to Jesus. He is the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And that elders are to be shepherds and overseers under the, under, the over-shepherd. 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Elders shepherd and oversee in order to lead people to Jesus the one in whom we have healing through his wounds. He alone is Savior, not the pastor. He alone is life, not the oratory skill of whoever it may be. Therefore, 1 Peter 5, to me and to my brothers and what you should expect, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for help for me to rise to this high and holy calling.
I pray for my brothers. I pray for other churches in our areas. I pray for Christ's covenant community. I pray for Rivermont Presbyterian. I pray for Highland Heights. I pray for Bedrock. I pray that the pastors and the elders there would exhibit godliness. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would likewise take these challenges to be holy. Father, you say that one day I will give an account before you for how I stewarded this role before you. Help me to walk in that. And I ask for my brothers and sisters' prayers, and I also pray for them that you would encourage them. And may they be driven daily to the living water that is Christ. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this day. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.